section three of the white wolf and other fireside tales this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by kate fallis the white wolf and other fireside tales by sir arthur thomas quiller couch section three sindbad on berater part one i heard this story in a farmhouse upon dartmoor and i give it in the words of the local doctor who told it we were a reading party of three undergraduates and a christchurch don the don had slipped on a boulder two days before while fishing the river mevy and sprained his ankle hence dr miles visit the two had made friends over the don's fly-book and the discovery that what the doctor did not know about dartmoor trout was not worth knowing hence an invitation to extend his visit over dinner at dinner the talk diverged from sport to the ancient tin-works stone circles camps and cromlechs on the tours about us and from there to touch speculatively on the darker side of the old religions hence at length the doctor story which he told over the pipes and whisky leaning his arms upon the table and gazing at it rather than at us as though drawing his memories out of the depths below its polished surface it must be thirty yes thirty years ago he said since i met the man on a bright november morning when the dartmoor hounds were drawing berater wood berater house in those days belonged to the rajah brook brook of sarawak who had bought it from harry tyrrell or rather it had been bought for him by the baroness burdett Coutts and other admirers in england harry tyrrell a great sportsman in his day had been loath enough to part with it and when the bargain was first proposed had named at random a price which was about double what he had given for the place the rajah closed with the sum at once asked him to make a list of everything in the house and put a price on whatever he cared to sell tyrrell made a full list putting what seemed to him fair prices on most of the furniture and high ones prohibitive he thought on the sticks he had a fancy to keep the rajah glanced over the paper in his grand manner and says he i'll take it all stop stop cried tyrrell i bain't going to let you have the bed i was married in as you please we'll strike out the bed then the rajah answered that is how he took possession berater house as i dare say you know faces across the mevy upon berater wood and the wood thanks to Trell, had always been a sure draw for a fox i had tramped over from tavistock on this particular morning for i was new to the country a young man looking around me for a practice and did not yet possess a horse and i sat on the slope above the house at the foot of the tor watching the scene on the opposite bank the fixture always a favourite one and the rajah's hospitality which was noble like everything about him 
had brought out a large and brightly dressed field and among them in his black coat moved tyrrell on a horse twice as good as it looked he had ridden over from his new home and i dare say in the rush of old associations had forgotten for the while that the familiar place was no longer his the rajah a statue of a man sat on a tall grey at the covert's edge directly below me and from time to time i watched him through my field-glass he had lately recovered from a stroke of paralysis and was i am told the wreck of his old self but the old fire lived in the ashes he sat there tall lean upright as a ramrod with his eyes turned from the covert and gazing straight in front over his horse's ears on the rushing mevy he had forgotten the hounds his care for his guests was at an end and i wondered what thoughts what memories of the east possessed him there is always a loneliness about a great man don't you think but i have never felt one to be so terribly yes terribly alone as the rajah was that morning among his guests and the devonshire tours every inch a king said a voice at my elbow and a little man settled himself down on the turf beside me i set down my glasses with a start he was a spare dry fellow of about fifty dressed in what i took for the working suit of a mechanic certainly he did not belong to the moor he wore no collar but a dingy yellow handkerchief knotted about his throat and both throat and face were seamed with wrinkles so thickly seamed that at first glance you might take them for tattoo marks but i had time for a second for without troubling to meet my eyes he nodded towards the rajah i've cut a day's work and travelled out from plymouth to get a sight of him and i've a wife will pull my hair out when i get home and she finds i haven't been to the docks to-day and i've had no breakfast but thirty grains of opium but he's worth it thirty grains of opium i stared at him incredulous he did not turn but still with his eyes on the valley below us stretched out a hand its fingers were gnarled and looked like a bird's claw and on the little finger a ruby flashed in the morning sunlight not a large ruby but of the purest pigeon's blood shade and in any case a stone of price you see this my wife thinks it's a sham one but it's not and some day when i'm drunk or in low water i shall part with it but not yet you've an eye for it i see and yet he was not looking towards me but the rajah yonder and i are the only two within a hundred miles that can read what's in the heart of it he gazed for a second or two at the stone lifted it to his ear as if listening and lowering his hand to the turf bent over it and gazed again ay he could understand and see into you my beauty he could hear the little drums tum-a-rumbling and the ox-bells and bangles tinkling and the shuffle of the elephants going by he could read the lust in you and the blood and the sun flickering and licking round the crisp that spilt it for it's the devil you have in you my dear but we know you he and i he and i ah there you go 
he muttered as the hounds broke into cry and the riders swept round the edge of the copse towards the sound of a view halloo there you go he nodded after the rajah but ride as you will the east is in you great man it's gold in your blood it's dust in your eyelids its own stink in your nostril and ride as you will you can never escape it he clasped his knees and leaned back against the slope following the grey horse and its rider with idolatrous gaze and i noted that one of the clasped hands lacked the two middle fingers you know him i asked you have seen him out there at sarawak i never saw him but i heard of him he smiled to himself it's not easy to pass certain gates in the east without hearing tell of the rajah brook for a while he sat nursing his knee while i filled and lit a pipe then he turned abruptly and over the flame of the match i saw his eyes the pupils clouded around the iris and as it were withdrawn inward and away from the world ever heard of kagayan sulu he asked never said i who or what is it it's an island said he it lies a matter of eighty miles off the northeast corner of borneo facing sandican as you might say who owns it he seemed to be considering the question well he answered slowly if you asked the spanish government i suppose they'd tell you the king of spain but that's a lie if you asked the natives the haji hamid for instance you'd be told it belonged to them and that's half a lie and if you asked the father of lies he might tell you the truth and call me for witness i lost two fingers there the only english flesh ever buried in those parts so i've bought my knowledge how did you come there i asked if it's a fair question he chuckled without mirth as it happens that's not a fair question but i'll tell you this much i came there with a brass band i began to think the man out of his mind with the instruments that is i dropped the bandmaster on the way look here he went on sharply the beginning is funny enough but i'm telling you no lies we'll suppose there was a ship a british man-of-war name not necessary just now i think i understand i nodded oh no you don't said he i'm not a deserter at least not exactly or i shouldn't be telling this to you well we'll suppose this ship bound from labuan to hong kong with orders to keep along the north side of borneo to start with and do a bit of exploring by the way this would be in forty nine when the british government had just taken over labuan very good next we'll suppose the captain puts in at kudat in marudu bay to pay a polite call on the rajah there or some understrapper of the sultan's and takes his ship's band ashore by way of compliment and that the band gets too drunk to play annie laurie he chuckled again i never saw such a band as we were down by the water's edge and o'hara the bandmaster took on and played the fool to such a tune while we waited for the boat to take us aboard that for the very love i bore him i had to knock him down and sit on him in a quiet corner while i sat keeping guard on him i must have dropped asleep myself 
for the next i remember was waking up to find the beach deserted and the boat gone this put me in a sweat of course but after groping some while about the foreshore which was as dark as the inside of your hat i tripped over a rope and so found a native boat o'hara wouldn't wake so i just lifted him on board like a sack tossed in his cornet in my bombardon tumbled in on top of them and started to row for dear life towards the ship's light in the offing but the rajah or rather his servants had filled us up with a kind of sticky drink that only begins to work when you think it about time to leave off i must have pulled miles towards that ship and every time i cast an eye over my shoulder her light was shining just as far away as ever at last i remember feeling sure i was bewitched and with that i must have tumbled off the thwart in a sound sleep when i awoke i had both arms round the bombardon there wasn't a sight of land or of the ship anywhere and if you please the sun was near sinking this time i managed to wake up o'hara we had splitting headaches the pair of us but we snatched up our instruments and started to blow on them like mad not a soul heard though we blew till the sweat poured down us and kept up the concert pretty well all through the night you may think it funny and i suppose we did amount to something like a joke we two bandsmen booming away at the popular airs of old england and the huntsman's course under those everlasting stars you wouldn't say so if you had been the audience when o'hara broke down and began to confess his sins luckily the sea kept smooth and next morning i took the oars in earnest we had no compass and i was famished but i stuck to it steering by the sun and pulling in the direction where i supposed land to lie o'hara kept a lookout we saw nothing however and down came the night again though the hunger had been gnawing and griping me for hours yet dog-tired as i was i curled myself at the bottom of the boat and slept and dreamed i was on board ship again and in my hammock a sort of booming in my ears awoke me looking up i saw daylight around clear morning light and blue sky and right overhead as it were a great cliff standing against the blue and there in the face of day o'hara sat on the thwart tugging like mad now cricking his neck almost to stare up at the cliff and now grinning down at me in silly triumph with that i caught at the meaning of the sound in my ears you infernal fool i shouted staggering up and making to snatch the paddle from him get her nose round to it and back her for it was the noise of breaking water but i was too late our boat i must tell you was a sort of dutch pram about twelve feet long and narrowing at the bows which stood well out of the water handy enough for beaching but not to be taken through breakers by reason of its sitting low in the stern o'hara as i yelled at him pulled his starboard paddle and brought her for these prams spin around easily almost broadside on to a tall comber as we slid up the side of it and hung there i had a glimpse of a steep clean fissure straight through the wall of rock ahead and in that instance o'hara sprawled his arms 
and toppled overboard the boat and i went by him with a rush i saw a hand and wrist lifted above the foam but when i looked back for them they were gone gone as i shot over the bar and through the cleft into smooth water i shouted and pulled back to the edge of the breakers but he was gone and i never saw him again i suppose it was ten minutes before i took heart to look about me i was floating on a lake of the bluest water i ever set eyes on and as calm as a pond except by the entrance where the spent waves after tumbling over the bar spread themselves in long ripples widening and widening until the edge of them melted and they were gone the banks of the lake rose sheer from its edge or so steeply that i saw no way of climbing them walls you might call them a good hundred feet high and widening gradually towards the top but in a circle as regular as ever you could draw with a pair of compasses any fool could see what had happened that here was the crater of a dead volcano one side of which had been broken into by the sea but the beauty of it sir coming on top of my weakness fairly made me cry for the walls at the top were fringed with palms and jungle trees and hung with creepers like curtains that trailed over the face of the cliff and down among the ferns by the shore i leaned over the boat and stared into the water it was clear clear you've no notion how clear but no bottom could i see it seemed to sink right through and into the sea on the other side of the world well all this was mighty pretty but it didn't tell me where to find a meal so i bailed out the boat and paddled along the eastern edge of the lake searching the cliffs for a path and after an hour or so i hit on what looked to me like a foot-track zigzagging up through the creepers and across the face of the rock i determined to try it made the boat fast to a clump of fern slung o'hara's cornet on to my side-belt and began to climb i saw no marks of footsteps but the track was a path all right through a teaser a dozen times i had to crawl on hands and knees under the creepers creepers with stems as thick as my two wrists and once about two-thirds of the way up i was forced to push sideways through a crevice dripping with water and so steep underfoot that i slid twice and caked myself with mud i very nearly gave out here but it was do or die and after ten minutes more of scratching pushing and scrambling i reached the top and sat down to mop my face and recover i dare say it was another ten minutes before i fetched breath enough and looked about me and as i turned my head there close behind me lay another crater with another lake smiling below all blue and peaceful as the one i had left i gazed from one to the other this new crater had no opening on the sea its sides were steeper though not quite so tall and either my eyes played a trick or its water stood at a higher level i stood there comparing the two when suddenly against the skyline and not two hundred yards away i caught sight of a man he was walking towards me around the edge of the crater and halting every now and then to stare down at my boat he might be a friend or he might be a foe but anyway it was not for me in my condition to choose which so i waited for him to come up 
and first i saw that he carried a spear and wore a pair of wide dirty white trousers and a short coat embroidered with gold and next that he was a true malay pretty well on in years with a greyish beard falling over his chest he had no shirt but a scarlet sash wrapped about his waist and holding a kris and two long pistols handsomely inlaid with gold in spite of his weapons he seemed to be a benevolent old boy he pointed towards my boat and tried me with a few questions first in his own language then in spanish of which i knew very little beyond the sound but i spread out my hands towards the sea by way of explaining our voyage and then pointed to my mouth if he understood he seemed in no hurry he tapped o'hara's cornet gingerly with two fingers i unstrung it and made shift to play home sweet home this delighted him he nodded rubbed his hands and stepped a few paces from me then turned and began fingering his spear in a way i did not like at all it's a matter of taste sir said i or words to that effect dropping the cornet like a hot potato but he pointed towards it and then over a ridge inland and i gathered i must pick it up and follow him which i did and pretty quick from the top of this ridge we faced across a small plain bounded on the north with a tier of hills most of which seemed by their shape to be volcanoes and out of action for the sky lay quite blue and clear above them the way down into this plain led through jungle but the plain itself had been cleared of all but small clumps dotted here and there which gave it you might say the look of an english park and about halfway across in a clear stretch of la longue grass stood a village of white huts huddling round a larger and much taller house the old man led me straight towards this and coming closer i saw that the large house had a rough glacis about it and a round wall pierced with loopholes a number of goats were feeding here and a few small cattle also the ground about the village had been cleared and planted with fruit trees mangoes bananas limes and oranges but as yet i saw no inhabitants the old malay who had kept ahead of me all the way walking at a fair pace here halted and once more signed to me to blow on the cornet i obeyed of course this time with the british grenadiers i declare to you it was like starting a swarm of bees you wouldn't believe the troops that came pouring out of those few huts the women in loose trousers pretty much like the men's but with arms bare and loose sarongs flung over their right shoulders the children with no more clothes than a pocket-handkerchief apiece i can't tell you what first informed me of my guide's rank among them whether the salaams they offered him or the richness of his dress he was the only one with gold lace and the only one who carried pistols or the air with which he paraded me through the crowd waving the people back to right and left and clearing away to a narrow door in the wall around the great house a man armed with a long fowling piece saluted him at the entry and once inside he pointed from the house to his own breast as much as to say i am the chief and this is mine i saluted him humbly a veranda ran around the four sides of the house with a trench between it and the fortified wall 
a plank bridge led across the trench to the veranda steps where my master or to call him by his right name haji hamid halted again and clapped his hands a couple of young malay women dressed like those i had passed in the street ran out in answer and were ordered to bring me food while it was preparing i rested on a low chair blinking at the sunlight on the fortified wall it had been pierced on the side of the house for eleven guns but six of the embrasures were empty and of the five pieces standing no two were alike in size age or manufacture and the best seemed to be a nine-pounder strapped to its carriage with rope haji hamid saw what i was looking at and chuckled to himself solemnly all through the meal which began with a mess of rice and chopped fowl and ended with bananas he sat beside me chewing beetle touching this thing and that naming it in his language and making me repeat the words after him he smiled at every mistake but never lost his patience indeed it was clear that my quickness delighted him and i did my best wondering all the while what he meant to do with me well to be short sir he intended to keep me i believe he would have done it for the sake of the cornet but before i had finished eating up stepped a sentry escorting a man with my bombardon under his arm i had left it as you know in the boat and had heard no order given but the boat i never saw again and here was my bombardon haji hamid took it in both hands felt it all over patted it and ended by turning it over to me and calling in dumb show for a tune i tell you my performance was a success at the first blast he leaned back suddenly in his chair at the second he turned a kind of purple under his yellow skin but at the third he caught hold of his stomach and began to roll in his seat and laugh you never saw a man laugh like it he made scarcely any sound he was too near apoplexy to speak but the tears ran down his face and one minute his hand would be up waving feebly to me to stop the next he'd be signalling to go on again i wanted poor o'hara he used to give himself airs and swear at my playing but among these people he and his coronet would have had to stand down they gave me a bed that night in a corner of the veranda and next morning my master came himself to wake me and took me down to the village bathing-pool just below the fortifications it hurt my modesty to find the whole mob of inhabitants gathered there and waiting and it didn't set me at ease exactly to notice that each man carried his spear for one nasty moment i pictured a duck hunt with me playing duck but there was no cause for alarm at a signal from hamid who stripped and led the way in we tumbled together men women and children the men first laying their spears on the bank beside their clothes six remained on shore to keep guard and were relieved after five minutes by another six from the pool there was a good deal of splashing and horseplay but nothing you could call immodest though my fair skin came in for an amount of attention i had to get used to my breakfast was served to me alone and soon after i was summoned to attend my master in one of the state-rooms of the house i found him on a shaded platform seated opposite an old native as well dressed and venerable looking as himself but stouter 
the pair lolled on cushions at either end of the platform smoking and smoothing their grey beards i understood that the visitor was a personage and somehow that he had been sent for expressly to hear and be astonished by my performance the two instruments were brought in upon cushions and i began to play the visitor who had less sense of humour than hamid did not laugh at all instead he took the mouthpiece of his chibouk slowly from his lips and held it at a little distance while his mouth and eyes opened wider and wider hamid eyed him keenly with a kind of triumph under his lids and the triumph grew as the old man's stare lit up with a jealousy there was no mistaking this too passed as i wound up with a flourish and stood at attention waiting for orders the visitor put out his hand but as i offered him the barmbadon he waved it aside impatiently and pointed to the cornet i passed it up to him he patted and examined it for a while laid it on his knee and the two men began talking in low voices i could see that compliments were passing but you'll guess i wasn't prepared for what followed hamid stood up suddenly and whispered to one of his six guards stationed below the platform the man went out and returned in five minutes followed by a girl now that the island girls were beautiful i had already discovered that morning and this one was no exception a small thing about five feet with glossy black hair and the tiniest feet and hands she seemed to me to walk nervously as if brought up for punishment and a thought took me and i shall be glad of it when i come to die that if they meant to ill-use her i might do worse than assault that venerable pair with my bombardon and end my adventures with credit my eyes were so taken up with the girl that for a full minute i paid no attention to my master she had come to a halt under the platform a couple of paces from me with her eyes cast down upon the floor and he on the platform was speaking by and by he stopped and glancing up i saw that he was motioning me to leave the room well they had made no show as yet of ill-treating her so i flung her one more look and obeyed feeling pretty mean i went out into the veranda walked the length of it and turned and there stood the girl right before me her little feet had followed me so softly that i had heard nothing and now as i stared at her she crept close with a sort of sidelong motion and knelt at my feet at the same moment drawing her sarong over her head to hide it then the truth came upon me i was married aoudya was her name what else can i tell you about her to describe her she was a child and all life came as play to her yet she understood love to the tips of her little matter-brown fingers she was my teacher too and i sat at her feet day after day and learned while she drilled the island language into me learned by the hour while she untwisted her hair and rubbed it with grated coconut and broke off her toilet to point to this thing and that and tell me its name laughing at my mistakes or flipping bits of beetle at me by way of reward i had no wife at home to vex my conscience at all 
all day we played about hamid's veranda like two children and hamid watched us with a sort of twinkle in his eye seemingly well content it was plain he had taken a fancy to me and i thought as time passed he grew friendlier i bless the old fellow too had he not given me auja i puzzled my head over this favour until auja explained you see she said it was done to oblige the haji hassan this was the old man who had listened to my performance on the bombardon he lived in a stockaded house on the far side of the island the chieftaincy of which he and hamid shared between them and without dispute how should it oblige hassan i asked because hassan could not see or hear my lord and lover without longing to possess such a man for his very own as who could and here she blew me a kiss thank you jewel of my heart said i but yet i don't see was it me he wanted or the bombardon i fancy he thought of you together but of course he did not ask for the big thing that would have been greedy he would be content with the little one the what you call cornet and don't you see no doubt it's stupid of me my dear said i but i'll be shot if i do she was sitting with a lapful of pandanus leaves blue and green weaving a mat of them while we talked and had just picked out a beater from the tools scattered round her a flat piece of board with a bevelled edge and shaped away to a handle stupid she says to me just like so and at the same time wraps me over the hand smartly he thought if peradventure there came to us a little one with a what you call cornet i clapped my hand to my mouth over a guffaw and with that she who had started laughing too came to a stop with her eyes fastened on the back of it i saw them stiffen and the pretty round pupils draw in and shrink to narrow slits like cats and her arm went back slowly behind her and her bosom leaned nearer and nearer i thought she was going to spring at me and as my silly laugh died out i turned my hand and held it palm outward to fend her off on the back of it was a drop of blood where the bevelled edge of the beater had by accident broken the skin somehow this movement of mine seemed to fetch her to bearings her hand came slowly forward again hesitated seemed to hover for a moment at her throat then went swiftly down to her bosom between bodice and flesh and came up again tugging after it what looked to me a piece of coarse thread she tossed it into my lap as i still sat there cross-legged and with that sprang up and raced away from me down to the veranda there was no chance of catching her and i was to tell the truth a bit too much taken aback to try i picked up the string on it was threaded a silk purse no bigger than a shilling and from this i shook into my palm a small stone like an opal i turned it over once or twice put it back in the purse and stowed string purse and all in my breeches pocket end of section three